what I love about bringing you know Dwight in is that he brings such an incredible depth of understanding of what it means to be a man living your faith out through all the paths of life, through all the challenges that brings. He uniquely brings, in my mind, deep wisdom, spiritual wisdom that's only earned over time as we faithfully walk out our faith. So I'm excited to, to uh, 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 bring uh, Pastor Dwight back and just want to say welcome. We, I'm, I'm excited about his message, too. I think you're going to find it to be powerful. Great. So welcome, sir. Great. Thank you, Craig. Good morning. <clears throat> he makes me sound pretty good, doesn't he? I, I should, uh, <laughs> Craig, I'm just going to have you follow me around wherever I go and introduce me to people because you make me sound all right. Um, uh, it's good to be with you again. I was, uh, I was here in January. I uh, took a message uh, for Ben while he was uh, uh, having a little bit of a break that week, and um, I'm really glad to be here today. I, uh, my family and I, we uh, worship at the Snoqualmie Valley Alliance Church, uh, closer to our home, and uh, I serve as an elder in the church there, as well as part of the teaching team. And um, uh, the message I'm going to share with you this morning is, um, is partly, let's see, do we have a slide? We, we covered a lot of things at the beginning. Hey, 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 there we go. Um, it's, uh, it's out of a sermon series. You'll see in the corner of some of these it says, Say What? <clears throat> We're doing a sermon series this summer at uh, SVA um, on parables. And um, it's a way to kind of cover summer because there's a lot of travel and things like that. And so a lot of us are filling in. And I took a Sunday in August. This is really exciting for me because I finished my August sermon already in order to share it with you. So you get a preview of what SVA will be getting in August. But I, I, uh, as, I've, um, as I started down this road, the, uh, the, the story that I want to cover, the parable I want to cover, is the story of the Good Samaritan that's told in Luke 10. And as we head down that road, you know, I'm, I, I find myself um, in, a, in a situation. My wife and I just celebrated the graduation of both of our kids from college. My, my daughter graduated with her master's degree in speech therapy and uh, or speech and language pathology, and she's going to be a speech therapist in the Federal Way School District. We're very excited that she is employed. And... Um, <laughs> We also have a, a son who graduated uh, with a, two, a double major in psychology, sociology, and he was working part-time in a, uh, a firm uh, doing digital marketing, and uh, they took him full-time. So we're excited. We have two college graduates who are both fully employed. So we are, we are so excited. <laughs> we're so excited about that. Um, but, but here's an interesting thing, and those of you um, that have walked with children through phases of life or, or their own Progression, um, or there are other types of things in, re- in other types of relationships, perhaps. Perhaps you've walked through a season where you have to answer the question, especially like with my children, I was their authority and their, their income stream, right? Their revenue stream for years. Every, every bite of food that went into their mouth was because of my hard work and my provision, right? Through the Lord. But, but you understand where I'm going with this. I had, I had uh, authority over them and now they are adults and we're still participating we're helping with some of the the student loan debt and some of that kind of thing going forward but really we've sort of shifted roles right i'm no longer an authority i'm becoming more of an advisor a, a hopefully a wise advisor but but what i find myself asking is this question 
Lord, how do I love my children right now? (laughs) Our son is making some choices that we wish he wasn't making as he's moving into his independence. And and I find myself saying, God, how do I love him? (laughs) What does love look like right now, right here? What does it look like? And I really believe, and and I'm going to guess you have a similar, whether you've used those specific words, you've had similar feelings as as you go through this. Maybe it was as you found your own independence out from under your parents. How do I love my parents back? How, what does love look like? How do I engage them? Maybe it's a former employee, things like this. But, but as we go through these processes and as the relationships change, you're going to find you have to ask this question on some level. What does love look like here? What does love look like here? And I believe that's at the heart in many ways of, of this parable. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, you don't need to. I'm actually going to put it on the screen. This is the new international version that I have up here. Um, but as we go through this, many of you, like me, I can remember back to being in, in the kids program, right, during service, in Sunday school. I remember going back and even vacation Bible school back in the day. And I remember the story of the Good Samaritan on the flannel graph, right? Do you remember, did you have this? It's like these pieces, these, these, these two-dimensional pieces that you put on this, this flannel thing so they would stand up and you could move the Samaritan around and the priests and you do all this stuff. Now, there's a lot we could cover in the Good Samaritan. In fact, as I've gotten into this, I've realized we could do four-week series just on this story. There's so much stuff in here. So rest assured, I won't have time to do that. So I'm going to hit on some things. And it was interesting as I started through this. What I'm really excited about is I was headed down one way and I thought, oh, I believe maybe this is what God wants me to speak about. And in the course of the study and kind of fleshing out the sermon, I felt like God was moving me moving the needle a little bit in a different direction. So I'm really excited to share this with you. If you want to read along um, on the screen or in your own Bibles, uh, Luke 10, starting with verse 25. And it says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he, Jesus, replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that is the expert in the law, stood up and wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, uh, sorry, uh, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he put the man on his own donkey, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now as we look uh, at at this text, there are different passages. In the, the broadest brush that, to just give context to this, if you're not familiar with this story or the relationships that are spelled out in the telling of this story, you have this man who is trying to test Jesus, right? The text is, is, uh, is explicit about that. He's trying to test him. So he asks him a question. How must I, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, uh, you know the law, what does it say? And he tells him, he gives him a great answer. Love God with my heart, soul, mind, strength, and my neighbor. Jesus says, you've done well. And then he takes it a step further and he wants to justify himself. It's always dangerous, friends, when we try to justify ourselves in front of God. <laughs> and he does this. He says, well, who is my neighbor? There is, the, the, the way I read that or the way I internalize that when I do that before God, because I want to justify myself before God, when I do that, what I'm trying to do is say, you see, I'm doing it right and I'm justifying the things that I don't want to do that would equally fulfill the commandment. And so he tries to justify himself and he says, who's my neighbor? In other words, I got this dialed. I know, I've been loving God and loving my neighbor. And Jesus tells this story, and it's interesting. A man comes from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is assumed in the telling of this story that someone coming from and going to those two cities would likely be a Jew. He falls among robbers, is beaten, stripped, left half dead in the ditch. Come, here comes a priest, someone who is a Jew, someone who is serving the temple, some is, someone who is serving before God and serving the people, and he passes by on the other side. Next, a Levite come. A Levite is not a priest, but he is someone who attends to the temple and, and, and assists the priests in the function of the temple, and he passes by on the other side. And as people that have been in ministry, Craig, we read this, and I think... I drove by a guy on the side of the road last night who was pulled over, and I didn't stop. Is that me? Am I that priest? Am I that Levite? And I asked these questions of myself. But the church-going people, that's the, that's the point of this story. The church-going people, the people that were of the same people group and of the same faith, the people that did not pay attention to this man who was lying half-dead, Ignore him. And the person that does stop and take care of these needs is the person who is an enemy. The Samaritans were half Jews and they were despised by the Jews. They were, they, were, uh, they, they were not given access into the temple. They were not given access in any part to the, to the life of a Jewish, uh, the Jewish people. And they were despised because they were half-breeds. They were outcast. And the enemy, the, the, the person who is viewed as an enemy of the man who was lying half dead is the guy who stops and takes care of all of these needs. That's the broadest concept. And then Jesus asks, who, who do you think was a neighbor to the man? And the, the expert in the law, I would assume humbly said, the one who had pity on him. 
Now, as we walk through this, there, there were three different, uh, different portions of this passage that I want to point out before we kind of talk about application. The first one is this. The first one is this word love that's used at the, at the top of this, uh, at the top of this uh, story. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Love, agape, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor. That's the way it's actually written in the Greek. The context is, it's, we, we, we think of it as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's actually, that verb is only used once, love. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor is the way it's written. I love this quote. Well, actually, first, the 1 Corinthians 13, if, you, if you've been a part of church, you know this. You know this passage where Paul is writing out, he's saying, this is what love looks like. We, we oftentimes think that, that, that love is an emotion, right? We wrap it up into this idea that it's, that it's oh, I'm in love. I, I love these things, and it's about these feelings and all of this. But what we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is its description of what love looks like in action. Love in action. Love is patient. It's not a, patience isn't an emotion. Patience is an action. Love is kind. Kindness is an action of love. It does not boast. It is not proud. He's describing what love's, love looks like as it's being acted out. And that's what love looks like. That's what agape is. I love this quote by C.K. Barrett. Love is an activity, the essential activity of God himself. And when men love, either him or their fellow men, they are doing, however imperfectly, They are doing what God does, and God is pleased when we act like him. Don't you love that parenthetical? <laughs> because here's what it means. I can have great intentions on what it can look like to love my wife, or love my children, or love my coworkers, or love my neighbors. I can have good intentions and do it poorly, <laughs> One of the things, when I left full-time ministry and, and found my way toward Costco, part of it was I had hit an emotional dead end. I was burned out, I, and a lot of it was my own just stuff. And I went through a lot of counseling, I went through some recovery work, and one of the things we say in recovery is, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. <laughs> what does it mean? It's exactly this. If loving my neighbor is worth doing, it's okay to not do it perfectly. Just love them. If loving my children in this phase of their life is worth doing, it's okay that I may not get it right. Do you see the beauty? <laughs> the beauty of that. Because people... You, you know, you, you've been able to read people's intentions. They speak kindly to me, but I don't trust it. You ever thought those kinds of things? Because you feel like it's, they're just saying something to be nice, but they're really trying to get something else, and I don't really, I don't know how to trust it. They're fine people, but I just don't trust it. You see, when we are operating from this idea of agape, when we are trying to love 
people, even if we're doing it poorly, they will give us the benefit of the doubt. Even if we're not doing it well. And and here's the other thing I find. They're very willing to forgive if we come back and you say, you know, I didn't do that very well. They can trust your intentions if we're truly loving with agape. So love, love is that, is that first word I wanted us to, to look at. The next word that I want us to look at is this idea of pity. Pity, this comes from, right, it's, it's the, the priest went by, the Levite went by, and the Samaritan went by. He saw the man lying half dead and he had pity on him. Pity on him. The, the Greek word, and I'm not, I'm not a huge Greek scholar guy or any of that, but I, but I do like this word, splakmitsomai. Isn't that awesome? It's such a great word. But he had pity on him. And here's what splakmitsomai means. It's not just going, oh, that's too bad. Splakmitsomai, what, what it is conjuring is this idea that we are being moved from our most inward parts it literally literally means to our bowels we are feeling it so deeply that the this root the root of this word is the same word that's used when they describe judas when he was spilled out in his death it's it's the it's we feel it in our gut It's the same thing we see. These these texts are up here. I'll just refer to them briefly. Jesus saw the crowds, and because they were like stray sheep, he had compassion on them. He pitied them. He splachnitzomied them. And he healed the sick. Matthew 20, moved by compassion, moved by compassion. Splagnizomai, did Jesus restore sight and heals diseases? Mark 8, he had compassion for the people who had been following him for days and he feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children from a loaf, two loaves of bread. Two fish and five loaves of bread. Did I get that right? That's another one of those flannel graph moments that I had to remember. Five loaves, two fish, right? I'm... I'm I get those confused sometimes. Luke 7, raising the widow's son from the dead. He says, my heart went out to her. Or it says, his heart went out to her. He had compassion. He He was moved and showed compassion on her and raised the son from the dead. Luke 1520, it's the same thing in the story of the prodigal. When the father is sitting it and he sees his son far in the distance it says he was moved with compassion he splugnitzomite and ran to his son and restored him into full sonship splugnitzomite he was moved Ephesians 4, he lists all of these warnings. Paul is listing all these warnings to the church at Ephesus. Behave this way. Don't behave this way. Do these things. He ends it with be kind and splachnitzomai. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave 
you. He is, he is, part of what he is saying is, why did Jesus come? He spoknitsomide us. He was moved to come. He showed pity and compassion on us. And that's why he comes. That's why he came. That's why, that's why he came. That's why he forgives. So we have love. Love. This broad umbrella. This action. Love in action. It, it, part of what happens is it moves us in our most inward parts. We show pity and compassion. Spokenitsumai. And then next, it's about mercy. Mercy, Elios. Elios is an action providing for the needs of others. Mercy is an action. Love is an action. Mercy is, is an act of mercy that's performed for the benefit of others. James two twelve. let me read this to you. James is warning the church. He's saying, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the first part. That's verse 12 and 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Justice and mercy are, is one of those things in Scripture that if you look at the life of Christ, there are some things that are, that are sort of inextricably linked together. Grace and truth. Right? John 1 tells us that, that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. And grace and truth are inextricably linked. Grace without truth is not real grace. It's just uh, enabling. <laughs> Truth without grace is just a, a board that we beat people up with. But when grace and truth are linked together, we can speak truth in love, and with that grace we can win people over. With grace, when we love people and offer them grace, there is truth in who we are and what we, what we understand about a, 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 um, uh, the truth of the Scripture, the truth of G, who Jesus was. And when we ex, ex show grace and, and they understand we also have it linked to truth, it can move people toward everything God wants them to be. And when we see this idea of mercy and justice linked, mercy and judgment linked, I'll, I'll confess to you, I am far better at offering judgment than mercy. I'm far better at it. Happened last night. My family and I, we, we drove into Seattle. We were going to an event there, and as we're driving in, you see all of the homeless camps along the freeway. And I just, I confess, I said, God, I am not spugnitzomite over that. I don't have, I'm not moved in my inner parts about that. And I find myself wanting to judge them. I wonder what they did, right? You remember John 9, the, the, the disciples are walking along with Jesus and there's the man who was born blind and, and their question to Jesus <laughs> Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Because they viewed it not as a point of mercy. They didn't view that person with any kind of mercy. They were trying to judge something. 
and, and, and read that person and figure out, well, the, there's a clear reason that happened. And if they would have behaved differently, if they would have done something differently, then that wouldn't have happened. And I have the same view, I confess to you, I have the same view about homeless situation. And part of it is, to be honest, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know where to start. Okay, but we're going to get there. We're going to get, sorry, I'm, I'm giving away the end here. <clears throat> we're, I'm giving away the end. He says, James goes on, right? He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. He goes on to say, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? You claim to have faith, there's no action to support that. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Isn't it interesting? He goes back to this place of just basic needs. The poor. But you have a brother and sister without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by Action is dead. Love in action. Love in action. Mercy is an action of love. Right? In John 3.16, going back to VBS and Sunday school, that God loved the world, and what did He do? He gave His only Son. To be able to justify. They don't have to self-justify anymore. No. He will be their justification. Christ himself. He will justify them. But God, he, God loved so much, he didn't just say, well, I hope you guys do okay. I hope it works out for you. No, he gave. He did something. He put love in action. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And what? Gave His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. So big statement. You ready for this? Big statement. Next slide. The opposite of love is not hate. It's selfishness. Yes, emotions, these emotions we talked about of love. Oh, I love her. I love the Seahawks. I love what, right? I love, I love. I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I'm confessing a lot here. Be with me, right? I, I love these things. No, no, no. Well, it, then I hate, hate. Yes, on the emotional side or the feeling side, if the opposite of love is hate, the opposite of the act of love is not hate. It is selfishness. I tell people all the time, I didn't think I was an overly selfish person, and then I got married and realized, oh, I'm kind of selfish. At that point, I didn't think I was an overly selfish person, and then we had one child. I realized, oh, well, I don't like to be inconvenienced. I don't like when my schedule gets disrupted. Oh, I didn't think I was, then I thought I had adjusted, and I'm not overly selfish, and then we had our second child, Right? Mm, mm, kind of selfish. See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love, really, love in action. The opposite of love in action is selfishness. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to get out of my routine. 
Look, and, and look, I'm, I'm not, if I'm looking at anyone, it should be a mirror at the back of the room because I'm looking at myself. I see this in myself a lot. So here, here's, so let's talk, let's try and get practical. And this is where, this is where I feel like God was taking this sermon that I hadn't seen coming. Let's get, let's get practical. Caring for each other is designed into recreation. It's a, first of all, it, look, it reflects the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all co-equal, but there is an interdependence that happens in the functioning of the Godhead, the Trinity. There is an interdependence. And we see it, interdependence, it started in the garden, right? It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Finally, in, in Genesis 2, 18, God says it isn't good. What isn't good? It's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to create a helper, a help meet to help him. Pre or post fall. Pre fall. Pre sin entering the human bloodstream. See, interdependence is a part of what God designed into perfection because it reflects who he is. We just celebrated Independence Day. And as Americans, we love to be independent. And there's a level to which when we think about it, when we talk about freedom and we talk about freedom over what we were wanting to leave, that's great, okay? That's fine. But as a people group, we are stronger when we function interdependently than we can be when we function independently. I am better when my wife and I get together and talk through the plan than I am when I just try and create it all on my own. I'm the same way with my team at work. I'm better when I sit down. Look, I've got a lot of great ideas, and I'm not a dumb person, okay? Right? And I, there's a part of me that wants to feel on a certain level like I can do this on my own. But then again, it feels like I'm a two-year-old all over again. I do it myself. And here's what I find is if when I, when I broaden the circle and bring in trusted, believe, trusted uh, uh, people with input and I hear and I really hear what they have to say and we talk it through, I get buy-in and, it, and it's a much easier discussion to have when we're getting ready to implement something. One of my favorite quotes in business is, it's a man named Patrick Lencioni, and he says, the people don't necessarily want their way, but they want to know that their thoughts and their, their ideas were considered in the final outcome. Right? As a, as a church body, there is a level to which <laughs> you just kind of want to be heard occasionally. I'm not saying it has to go my way, but would you, just, would you just make sure I'm being heard? And that creates this idea of interdependence. In Deuteronomy 15, 
This is, see, this is, now we go back to the law. In Deuteronomy 15, uh, God tells the people of Israel this. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Don't be selfish. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. He talks, then there's a little section in there where he talks about the year of Jubilee. I didn't want to get into the weeds on that. So just continuing with verse 10, give generously to them and do so without grudging, without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. This idea of caring for each other was a part of the creation. It's built in. He, He commands it when the nation of Israel is becoming established. He commands it. And here's... Here's, so, so let me just give you a, a brief takeaway. I, I, God, has, God has truly blessed my wife and me in terms of, and, and now we've got, right, there's no more tuition to pay. And I, I know and some of you are going, oh, there's other things to pay. And I, I'm with you. I get that part. I get that part. But here's, it happened very early, actually. When I first got my, when I, when I became a senior pastor, I got a pay raise that I, that it, at that time was just, overwhelming how how much more money i was going to make from being an associate and i remember we had a friend who was in need they lived in carnation um and my wife and i had agreed okay we're going to do we're going to give them a 200 hundred dollar safeway cash card because that's close to their house and a 200 hundred dollar costco cash card because they're they're they've got diapers they've had a newborn so diapers formula all that kind of stuff right so following me I go to the Safeway to get the cash card. I get it. I go to Costco, and as I'm waiting in line to get the, line, the thing at cash, at, at, to get the cash card, here's what I started doing in my head. That's a lot of money. I mean, I know, but it's, I mean, I know we're going to have plenty, but I, that's a lot of money. And I felt something rise up into me. That must have been the Lord because I'm not, this, I'm not this righteous on my own because I am inherently selfish on certain levels. And I felt like, I was like, no. And when I got to the front of the line, I said, I want a $250 cash card because, because I, what I didn't want to have happen was I didn't want to start being afraid. Look, if you've been around the church or maybe you've experienced it on other levels, some of the most generous people I know are the people that seemingly have the least to give. Listen to that. The people that seemingly give the most are the ones that seemingly have the, the least to give. I run, uh, I run with Team World Vision. We raise money for, um, for well, water projects around Africa. And here's what I find. I have people, I know how much they make, and they will give me $50, and I know as a percentage of their paycheck, that's a lot of money. And I have other people that have given me $500, $800, but I know as a percentage of what they're going to make in the year, it's a pittance. It's a rounding error. Why is it that the poor seem to be so generous? In many ways, I think it's because they understand what $50 can mean 
in a month where there's more month than money. And some of us, perhaps, that have, have been able to enjoy larger income, we don't, we don't understand the impact that that money can have. So as, as, I, as I read this and as I, as I get convicted about giving generously, here's, what, here's what's happened. Because in this role that I'm in with Costco, Costco is rewarding me well. I have decided I'm going to have a posture of yes. I'm going to have a posture of yes. And I'm going to ask God how much. But my posture is not, I don't know. The posture I'm trying to hold is, I am not going to be selfish. I'm going to, I am going to say yes. It may be 25. It may be 250. I don't know. But I am going to live in a posture of generosity. In this phase in my life, if, when I was here a few months back, I, I talked about the fact that I am in this phase where the, 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 the trend, it's a transition point of <laughs> less like Yoda, or less like Luke, more like Yoda. I am in this phase, I'm, I am 54 years old, and I'm discovering that there's a lot, there's this wave of youth that we need in our church in particular to embrace, to encourage, to help craft and mold and develop, and my role is becoming more of this Yoda thing. And I want to be, as I get older, and as, as I look toward this idea of maybe retirement and all of this other stuff, I am trying to say, no, 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 no. I am not going to cease to be generative in how I... I live out my life. I am always going to try and look to invest and develop people to the best of my ability within the context of that relationship. Because I believe that's, that's in part what is here. Yes, I need to be generous with the money God has blessed me with. But I also need to be generous in my time. I need to be generous in my attitude. I need to be generous with my words. And I grew up in a household that was very sparing on words of, uh, of encouragement. Those were withheld. And I don't fully understand, and I don't want to psychoanalyze my parents. They loved me. I do know that. But I was a kid who needed encouragement, and, and it was really, I, I dried up. God gave me kind of a surrogate family, oddly enough, not believers, who were some of the most encouraging people I've ever had in my life. And I've decided part of what I'm going to, to try and do is always look for a way to encourage others in an assessment or any kind of aftermath, even if I thought I could do it better. Because that's usually <laughs> where I get judgy. Oh, I could have done that better. They could have done better if, right? All this. No, no, no. Thank you for what you did. I really appreciate you getting up and, and sharing what you, what you had. It was really, you did a really good job. And I'm, try, I'm not trying to blow smoke. I'm not trying to create a, a false narrative around who I am. I'm just, I want to be generous with my money, with my time, with my thoughts, and with my words. We'll see how far I've strayed here. Okay. So for, for us, for us. Let's look at like the Samaritan. You see, the Samaritan was going down the road and he saw the man. He was moved by the man and he chose to act for the man on behalf of the man. 
So what do we have to do? Like the Samaritan, we have to see our neighbors. Now, the word there, again, if you've been in church and heard sermons around us, you know that it's basically just near ones, ones that are near to us. What can that look like? What does that mean in this age versus the age in which this parable was told? What What does a near one look? The world has incredibly shrunk, right? I mean, in this age, they didn't, it, that world didn't necessarily understand North America and South America existed, right? When they said go into all the world, it was kind of like, you know, France and Spain and <laughs> North Africa, right? I mean, that was the uttermost parts at that point. And so as I think about this and as I was, I was, I was considering this, I the way that I've interpreted this idea of near ones, it's people who cross my path. People who cross my path. Sometimes that's, sometimes that's the person. There is, a, there is a group of about four or five people that stand at the same spot as I'm going to go to the freeway to go home in the evening. They stand right there and they have a sign, living outside, anything helps. They, they use the same side. You can see, I, you can even hear in my voice, I have cynicism around how, how do I help them? I haven't figured this one out, right? But there are people who, who on an analog level, on a, on a literal level, cross my path. There are other people that cross my path digitally, through social network, through, through email chains, where people are saying, hey, I, there is a legitimate need that needs to be met. Can you be a part of it? That's how I got involved in Team World Vision, where I run and raise funds for well projects. I also have, uh, I'm sponsoring a child. I'm sponsoring a child now uh, through, through World Vision. I, I, so I'm not telling you this is how you need to do it. I'm just saying these are examples of what I understand near ones to be. The Kiru lives in Ethiopia. He's not near in, in, in the terms of a neighbor, Right? But he is a near one. He came across my path. And my heart went, I was moved to act on his behalf. It can be your literal neighbors, people that live close to you, in proximity to you. It could be people that cross your path in the marketplace. You ever, you ever paid it forward? There was a guy who was coming through the line at our deli in the building I work in. Um, he, he, his, his, uh, he didn't have, you have to either have cash or a Costco cash card to pay at this deli, okay? That's just the way Costco does it. He didn't have cash. He didn't have a cash card. I bought him breakfast, I, right? I did that once. I, I like doing it in general. Jim Senegal, who's the founder of Costco, he was retired at the time, but we had meetings that he was coming to. He was coming through. He had a Diet 7-Up in his hand. And I said to the cashier, I said, let me buy it for him. He comes through, you know, he'd been, he was retired, he's still on the board, that, that kind of thing. He came in, I said, Jim, it's been my pleasure to buy you a drink today. And he kind of looked and I said, well, I heard you were out of work. <laughs> and he laughed. And I don't know if he'll ever remember me. I don't even, I, right, I, I don't know any of that. It doesn't matter. I felt, I felt like God wanted me to do, so I try to do these sorts of things. I look for opportunities to pay for people just without any expectation. There was a movement around a book called Random Acts of Kindness. What can I do to make someone's day better? I also, when I walk the halls at Costco, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people, and, we, and I started that way. You walk with your head down, you're thinking about stuff, you look really busy, and you must be important. Here's what I've started to do. I started walking down the halls with my head up. 
I try to meet people in the eye, and I smile and say, good day, good morning, hi, because I want to be generous with my thoughts, with my words, with my attitudes, with my money. We have to see the near ones. We have to be moved by our neighbor's needs. When I see poverty, when I see homelessness, right? If you, if you want a ministry that's going to thrive over time, and if you want God's blessing, take care of widows and orphans. <laughs> Throughout Scripture, God says, it was in the Deuteronomy passage, it was in the passage we just read in uh, 1 Corinthians. Take care of widows and orphans. God will bless it. God will bless it. Here's what happens. I feel like I become numb to it. it I told you, this, this group of three or four or five people living outside, anything helps. They, they're on the same page. I've, I've, grown, I've grown numb to them, and I don't see them anymore even. You with me? I've, I've, I'm unaffected by their need. Is it because I'm overwhelmed by the number or the immensity of the need? Is it because I'm afraid if I give them $5, it won't become food, it'll become a drink or it'll become a drug or something like that? Here's the thing. Let me, let me tell you how God convicted me around that. I feel like God has said to me, Dwight, that's not your responsibility. If I say give, give. What they do with it is about their relationship with me and all of that other stuff that I haven't given you authority over. I have said things like, I hope you can buy some food with this. I've, tr- you know, I just... but I can't control it. And, I've, and I have become more generous in this, ar- this arena. And look, Dwight's not here to talk about Dwight. You with me? This is about God convicting me of, of what I believe he wants me to do. We must be moved by their need. I, and and so, one of the reasons I judge is that it helps me avoid the feelings of mercy. It's easier to judge, size it up, decide what it is, judge it, and then I don't have to pay attention to maybe what God's trying to do in spluck nitso myeing me. We must act on our neighbor's behalf. James 1 says this, Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after widows, orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Real quickly, I'm go- I've gone longer than I, than I planned to. I, clearly I got on a roll here, so we'll see what happens. Um, to, f- to truly fulfill the command to love, we must let the need of those in need move us to act on their behalf. Right? It, wouldn't it be easier if, the goods, if, if Jesus said there was a man, there was a Levite, there was a priest, this man comes down, he sees him, he has pity on him, and then goes about his day. <laughs> that would be much easier. No, what did he do? He took care of all of the need, including a down payment toward future need, that if, if that need extended past those two denarii, I'll come back and I'll even it up. I'll take care of it at the end. We must let the need of those in need move us to act on their behalf. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6-15. I'll just read part of this. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, we, we, I, I initially interpreted this. So if I sow abundantly, I'm going to get that same thing back. But what's clear in the Deuteronomy passage, and I believe the heart of this text is, you uh, uh, sow abundantly, you will reap something. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a do, you know, for every dollar you give, you're going to get 40 back. It's not that kind of abundant reaping. It's about life. It's about, <laughs> it's about inner peace. God will bless your family. God will bless your business. God will bless, God will bless, God will bless. Because your heart is not tied to dollars and cents and time. Your heart is tied to being generative and generous in a world that so badly needs it. You will be blessed. I've said to my children, (laughs) obedience is its own blessing. whether you get anything in return, whether you can tie it, obedience is its own blessing. It is its own reward. Thanks be to God for his incredible, indescribable gift. In giving to the poor, we take our eye off earthly treasure and receive an enduring treasure in heaven. Where Sorry, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I started to screw that up in my head. So where your treasure is, where you place your eye, that's where your your heart will follow it. If it's in about being generous, and if if, if it's about showing love and being love in action to others, that if that becomes our treasure, God will bless, God will reward. If it's about our bank account and our a state that we're trying to build and all of this stuff. We're, we're going to lose in the end. A couple of quotes. You can never get enough of what you don't need. You can never get enough of what you don't need. There's a singer-songwriter I really like. Uh, the next slide. David Wilcox says this. You can get what's second best, but it's hard to get enough. Ouch. Right? The famous quote from Rockefeller. Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Just a little more. Just a little more. If it's about money and stuff and things of this world, we will never get it. You, You can get it, but it'll never be enough. It's about God and the things of the world to come. You will find moments of great fulfillment that seem to be fleeting because there's more need and we're never done. 
But if we put our focus on first best things, our lives will be far more at peace and far more in line with what God wants for us. All right, I am wrapping up. If the, if the, as the team comes forward, I want to talk just real, real briefly about this. Attitude towards God's provision. Why don't we act? Well, sometimes we don't act because we're afraid. We have a scarcity mentality or a scarcity attitude. There's only so much. There's only so much. I need just this much. So we have fear. And, and actually, even though it says we will reap abundantly, if we sow abundantly, we will reap abundantly, there is a little bit of folly in having an abundance mentality that says, I'll just give whatever, whenever, all the time. All the time. I'm just going to give, 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 and not consider anything about it. Now, you, you may wonder if I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. No, I, I don't think I am, because, because ultimately that becomes about me doing it, and then I can justify myself before God. Here's what I believe he's calling us to, is an attitude of provision about faith, that there is enough. There's not too little to fulfill what he wants me to do, and there's not so much that I don't have to consider him in what I do, because, that, because what he is ultimately trying to draw me toward in this, in this wrestling of, what does it look like to love my neighbor? What does love in action look like? He is moving me toward this, this posture of dependence, dependence. When I was a youth pastor, what would Jesus do was a was a wristband, right? It was this whole wave of what would Jesus do? But here's the problem with that. It became this thing of, well, Jesus would clearly do that. In other words, Dwight's standing up here, and therefore, if, if, God, if, if I feel like I'm supposed to give 200, I should give 250, because that's what Dwight did, because he believes that's what Jesus would do. Here's, here's what Jesus would do. It, throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, what did Jesus do? Time and time and time again. Jesus went to the Father, <laughs> So, Father, what should I do? He was walking the pool of Bethesda. There, the Bible tells us there were hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, who were sick and lame around this pool waiting for the miracle to happen. Jesus navigates his way through it. Does he heal all of them? No. Could he have healed all of them? Sure. How many did he heal that day? One. Why? I don't know. We don't know. But I believe he was walking in a posture of dependence on the Father, and the Father said, this one. And at other times, he was healing multitudes at a time. What does love in action look like? I think it begins with this idea, Father, how do I live out your love for me today? In the moment, Father, how do I love this coworker who is being so ugly toward me right now? Or they're falling apart and there is, you know, workplace, you know, etiquette. I don't know what I can do. Father, how do I love them right now? What does love look like right now? Do you see? It, it, shifts, it shifts from me having to figure it all out to the Father showing me how to figure it out. And man. And if we love them, even if we do it imperfectly, we are modeling God to them. We are modeling love to them. So as we transition, Craig, I'll have you, you come. God bless you. Thank you. Well, thanks, Pastor Dwight. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, 